0: Welcome to SongCraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. SongCraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com.
1: You're listening to the 2010 remake of Nobody, the first song released as a single by the Doobie Brothers back in 1971. It was written by the Doobie's lead singer, guitarist, and founding member Tom Johnston, who's our guest on this episode of Songcraft. Johnston wrote nine of the first 13 singles issued by the Doobie Brothers between 1971 and 1975, including the hits Listen to the Music, Long Train Runnin', China Grove, and the classic rock radio staple Rockin' Down the Highway. His voice can be heard on additional Doobie Brothers hits, including Jesus is Just Alright and Take Me in Your Arms, Rock Me. After being sidelined by health issues, Michael McDonald replaced him in the band, with Johnston eventually going on to a solo career. He released two albums for Warner Brothers Records, scored a Top 40 single with the self-pinned Savannah Nights, and performed the song Where Are You Tonight for the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which sold over 11 million albums in the U.S. alone. He returned to the Doobie Brothers in the late 1980s, writing the Top 10 single The Doctor, and going on to pen such songs as 1991's "Rollin' On, which was a hit on Billboard's mainstream rock chart. Additionally, he wrote the title track for their 2011 album, World Gone Crazy. In 2014, the band released the album Southbound, featuring duets with well-known country performers Blake Shelton, Hunter Hayes, Toby Keith, Chris Young, Brad Paisley, and others. Johnston continues to front the Grammy-winning Doobie Brothers alongside fellow founder, guitarist, and songwriter Patrick Simmons. The band has sold more than 48 million albums, including The Best of the Doobies, which is among the 100 top-selling albums of all time. Okay, that opening song
0: that we just listened to, Nobody. Such a cool song, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, I'm really glad you just showed me this video kind of in preparation for doing uh, this interview, and and we watched the video of the 2010 uh, remake of Nobody. Yeah. What a cool video, man. It's like
1: interspersed with like all that great old footage, but
0: they sound as good as ever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would encourage anyone to just hit pause right now on this podcast and go watch that video of the 2010 version of nobody on YouTube, because if you, don't get fired up about the Doobie Brothers after you watch that. Then uh, you don't like music.
0: Yeah, and, and then of course come back and listen to the interview. Yes,
1: please do not fall down a <laughs> Doobie Brothers rabbit hole on YouTube and never return to Songcraft. But
0: the video is amazing. It's like it's got these great, like almost famous kind of looking clips, which is one of my favorite movies. And and I, this interview was particularly fun for me because I'm just such like a big classic rock fan. And yeah, this, this stuff was such a staple of classic rock radio growing up, and it. it takes me back to some of the stuff that made me fall in love with rock and roll in the first place
1: yeah when you think about like the early to mid 70s and you think about who were the great american classic rock bands there's there's a very narrow pool of contenders i mean you got the eagles uh leonard skyndard allman brothers doobie brothers are definitely right up there
0: you have your grand funks on the edges and stuff but but (laughs) doobies were in the center
1: yeah yeah part of the upper echelon of classic rock um I was thinking about, you know, there's this scene in, in the movie Spinal Tap where Nigel Tufnell leaves the band and they're asking David St. Hubbins, the lead singer, uh, Spinal Tap, of course, being a mockumentary oh, in right. case you're one of the three people on earth who's not seen it. <laughs> um, and, and they ask the lead singer, aren't you sad that Nigel has left? And he's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, there's been 37 people in this band. Right. And, uh, and you know, it's a joke about like how many people have been in the band The Doobie Brothers, by my count, has had like 30 people in the band. Yeah, Yeah. amazing. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of bands are very um, personality-driven. Like, you can name the guys in the Eagles, you know? Um, Most people can can name, you know, at least two or three guys in the Allman Brothers band. Uh, The Doobie Brothers almost became like greater than the sum of its parts yeah. it was like this collective of musicians who brought in all these different styles and influences so that a lot of doobie brothers songs don't sound the same as other doobie brothers right. songs right. and it's almost like you're witnessing this private club of great musicians who gather together and create this really magical thing right
0: and yet at the center of it is tom johnston yeah. You know, that voice, you, you hear it, you know, at the center of songs like China Grove and Long Train Runnin'. And even when you get to kind of the back half of Blackwater, then in come the ad-libs and there's Tom Johnston. Right, you know, that right. voice is kind of like a thread that goes through so much of that early and mid-70s stuff. And even talking to him today, I, I sort of didn't realize how much of a part of that band's sound his guitar playing is. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of strummy rhythm that you hear at the center of Long Train Runnin'. And it, it was really cool to hear him sort of talk about how that came to be.
1: Yeah, very like that percussive guitar style and and, uh, some of the songs that we will be playing today during the interview, some of the ones that are more deep cuts that people might not uh, be familiar with already When you hear that guitar You're like, oh yeah right. That's that Tom Johnston Doobies kind of thing And it's it's really distinct And, and very cool And it, one thing that he said Before we get to the interview That I wanted to just mention Because it struck me Is he was talking about Formulating his style And he said Almost offhandedly I was playing guitar All the time mm-hmm. Back in those days And, you know, people Nowadays you'll hear people I sound like an old man Nowadays <laughs> But, you know, you'll hear people say, like, I want to be famous. Right. You know, but back then it was like, I want to be the master of my craft. How do you get to be a person whose songs are still being played on the radio 40 years after they're written? Well, it's by playing guitar all the time. time. It's by learning your craft. It's by honing that art. It's by soaking up all the music that you can and always having your instrument in your hand and figuring out how you are going to put your own unique twist on it.
0: Yeah. I think the true crime of this whole thing is that Tom has never had a chance to hear our version of China Grove <laughs> from circa 1991 our high school band playing the dance in the Brentwood Academy commons. I, yeah. I feel like that was probably the the ultimate moment. I think of the that song's the life.
1: the homecoming dance uh us playing China Grove bracketed by smells like teen spirit and uh abc by the jackson five showed that we really knew how to tie a set together we
0: knew how to put a set list together that's for sure (laughs) crowd pleasers
1: yeah let's hope no one had a video camera rolling that night
0: yeah to be continued (laughs) so let's uh let's give a listen to tom johnston
1: all right tom welcome
0: to songcraft
2: thank you very much and good day
0: So tell us a little bit about your earliest musical influences and how you first got into writing songs of your own.
2: My earliest influences were pretty much blues players uh, and R&B. Rock and Roll came shortly after with Chuck Berry. Well, well, actually, my earliest, earliest influences were like Little Richard and Bo Diddley. That's the first two out of the box. Yeah. I was only nine years old when I heard those guys, so... um, they had a big influence on me right away right. um my brother brought those albums home and he didn't play in there as much as i did
1: <laughs> <laughs> he took them over. i loved them
2: yeah um and then i got into jimmy reed and then i progressed into a lot more blues players uh freddie king the, the three kings i call them freddie right. albert and b <laughs> right yeah and um uh, A lot of R&B music. There was a local station where I lived in Central California in the Agricultural Belt. Uh, Not exactly known for being a music hotbed. (laughs) Although Salvador was, if you were in the country music. That's Mm, where the Buck Owens thing was going on. Right. But I say it wasn't exactly a a musical town, per se. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: There was a little town called Fowler, California. And I used to listen to a station called Happy Herald's House of Blues. Hmm. And it was just some little... I never saw it. I have no idea where it was. It was just something I heard the screen door slam when he decided to leave and come back in the midst of his show. It was pretty (laughs) interesting.
3: Wow. That's cool.
2: But he played great music. He played everybody. People I'd never heard of. A lot of guys. Yeah, uh, yeah. Introduced to a lot of blues players and early R&B in those days. That would have been in the early 60s, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, you know, like you mentioned, that area. I mean, uh, Visalia is a, a little more than an hour north of Bakersfield, for, for those who aren't familiar with the geography. And, you know, you mentioned Buck Owens and, of course, Merle Haggard. And when you were mm-hmm. growing up would have been a little bit right before those guys hit big. Um, but there, of course, was a lot of country music going on in the in the Central Valley. Was, was country music something that uh, kind of entered your awareness at all or, or had any influence on you?
2: No. <laughs> in a word <laughs> uh, I don't mean that in any with any Ill, Ill will or anything else it just uh, it never got played in my house yeah. by my parents or anything uh, my brother sister were not into it
3: yeah
2: and uh, so I just never heard it it's right. pretty much simplistic, simplistically put
3: yeah
2: uh, but I sure heard a lot of the other stuff mm-hmm. so right. that's pretty much what I heard and listened to and grew up playing
3: yeah yeah
1: and then, so, how did you first get into kind of writing songs of your own?
2: I don't think I started really writing songs until I was about, well, 15, I guess, and they were very rudimentary at best, um, <laughs> kind of like Chuck Berry ripoff or a blues tune of, or something like that. Um, I was in high school. I played, you know, in all the requisite high school bands like everybody else did. Sure. Everybody had to learn hideaways, so I did that. <laughs> right, right. Um I I, we were, I was in a band called The Implicit. Nobody's going to have any reason to know who this is, but um, we got hooked up with a really interesting uh, combination of a hooker and a janitor uh, <laughs> from Basilia, who found thought the the it was a way to make money basically off somebody's parents. That's what it came down to, and that's exactly what happened.
3: Right.
2: And uh, the janitor was a janitor for um, Capitol Records in L.A. Huh. so he had the keys to the building right
3: right mm-hmm.
2: that's how he got us in there and then the gal acted as the uh, go between for the record quote unquote record company which was hilarious <laughs> but um, <laughs> so we went down there and cut um, a two sided um, 45 right directed disc supposedly with Bobby Darren producing although he never showed up oddly right. enough <laughs> and uh we were taken to bobby darren's office by uh using you know utilizing the uh keys of the janitor he took us in there
1: <laughs> right it's amazing
2: no bobby but uh <laughs> it was damn interesting at any rate we were all young we we're all 14 15, 15 right. 16, whatever depending on who was playing and uh The next day we cut that uh, double-sided 45 I spoke up and went back after by sight thinking we'd hit the big time, which was laughable. But um, (laughs) it was an interesting experience, and that was probably the first song I can actually recall, or songs, I should say, plural, writing.
1: Yeah. Do you remember the titles?
2: Um, Give Me Justice was one of them. Uh Uh-huh. God, you know, I don't remember the name of it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think between the hooker and the janitor and the absent Bobby Darren, I, I think we've got all we need. I, I <laughs> That's yeah, a good nice story. Very colorful. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Um. Well, it was while attending college in San Jose and and playing in various bands that I understand you got acquainted with Skip Spence, who had played with Quicksilver Messenger Service and Jefferson Airplane before um, forming Moby Grape. Uh, Talk about what impact uh, he had on you as a a musician and in terms of your career development.
2: Uh, I actually met Skip through my sister, oddly enough. She knew him because he used to play at a place called... the. Rooster, which was basically a coffee house kind of thing back then, hmm. and uh, we just started making music, just started playing together once in a while.
3: Yeah,
2: Skip was a very, I've mean, already used this term, but very colorful guy,
3: <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> um, he was in the early throes of um, schizophrenia, and I oh, didn't wow. know it at the time,
3: yeah,
2: and um, but he was still grounded enough to you know get around and take care of business, if you will. And, uh, we did a lot of jamming together, and I played in a band with him a couple of times. It wasn't a long-lasting or steady thing, but that's how I met uh, Pat Simmons that night. Uh, Mm. It was he and I and John Hartman, and the three of us started jamming. Um, we had a bass player, uh, he kind of drifted off, and he was replaced by Dave Shogren, who eventually Mm. became the earliest bass player for the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. And, um, that band really didn't involve Skip Spence. That was myself, John Hartman, Pat, when he got there, and Dave Shogren. That was the initial Dewey Brothers.
0: Talk about how you guys went from being just a bunch of young guys playing in various bands and coming together to, to form this thing to finally signing with Warner Brothers Records.
2: Um, actually, Skip had a hand in that, believe it or not. Huh. Um, <laughs> he introduced us to the guy that owned the studio in San Mateo, where we went up and cut a demo. And we cut some of the songs that we'd been writing at that time. And he, in turn, without asking us, he was pretty much a bit of a kind of slam, you guys. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'll skip it. I'm really unclear on this as to how the music got down to L.A. But it got down to L.A. and got to Warner's. And they heard the demo tape, and they loved it. And they, At least that's what they told us, anyway. <laughs> And um, they signed the band.
3: Wow. Mm.
2: It was back in the time period when those kind of things could happen. That wouldn't happen today in a million years. But um, (laughs) back then, stuff like that could happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well... You know, once the Doobie Brothers are signed to Warner Brothers Records, obviously that's when things start happening and there are so many Tom Johnston songs that we could dive into, but I wanna narrow the focus with kind of a little framework I'm gonna to call Tom's Top Ten. We'll just uh sure. we'll focus in on, on ten of your songs, uh kinda of in the order that they were released and and maybe use some of those as kind of a springboard to to talk about some related topics. But um, let's start with Nobody, which was the debut single from the Doobie Brothers self-titled first album in
0: 1971.
1: That's a, a song that, That failed to chart, but then it was re-released by Warner Brothers in 1974 after you guys had become successful, and then you re-recorded it and released as a single from the World Gone Crazy album once again in 2010. Um, Obviously, Nobody is not one of the best-known Doobie Brothers songs, but it's one that consistently has cropped up several times in your career. Um, What is it about that song that's special for you?
2: I think the one thing that makes that song special was the first thing we cut. So yeah. it was a big deal. We'd never been in a studio before, Yeah, a professional studio at any rate, and oh, yeah. um, that was the first track we recorded. Wow. And um, it got recorded yet again, if you can believe that, really? uh, when we did that country mashup. up Oh, Tony the
1: southbound, yeah.
2: On southbound, yeah. And that, if you want to know the truth, that's my favorite version.
1: Is it? <laughs> really? <laughs> so you guys finally got it right. <laughs> right.
2: Uh, <laughs> totally different from all the rest of them. Yeah, wow. yeah. And uh, Charlie Warsham played and sang on it with me and he did a killer job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it wasn't until the Doobie Brothers' second album that you started having real commercial success beginning with the first single Listen to the Music, which hit number 11 on the Billboard Pop Chart. It was a top 10 on the other major industry charts. And it's the second song that we want to touch on today. <laughs> about how you came up with that one.
2: That was basically what I call early bedroom 12th street song. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, I wrote it at about 2 in the morning. In those days, I played guitar a lot. I was mm-hmm. playing guitar all the time. If I wasn't, you know, in art classes or what have you, I would take that guitar and play it in parks, play it in uh, parties, play it at, uh, it was an acoustic guitar at that time I was playing a lot of, which I hadn't up to that time spent a lot of time on acoustic and uh that's why i developed that rhythm style yeah uh which was basically make your own drummer (laughs) Uh, right that's pretty much what that's all about i didn't have a drummer around so i kind of made up with the rhythm style having a kick and, and snare if you will yeah and um i was in there playing as usual late at night in uh the room i had on 12th Street and that's the first song I think I wrote well it's not the first song because I wrote one when I was 18 but that's the first song that anybody ever heard that I wrote that had the words all the chord changes pretty much everything the way it was going to be when it was finished wow hmm. that didn't happen a lot yeah um, but that one did and I called Ted Templeman up that night or that morning the
1: Doobies producer yeah
2: uh, at about 2.30 woke him up and played a poem play over the phone and of course he was going, I don't know <laughs> I have no idea. I said, Ah, oh, this one's gonna be a single man. Yeah. I guarantee this is a single wow. and uh he said, Well call me up tomorrow when I'm awake and um, <laughs> So I did and we did go in and, and we cut it pretty much just exactly the way I wrote it. Yeah. I mean there's a lot of little overdubs and things I wouldn't have thought of, but uh, as far as the chord progression and the words didn't change at all. Wow. wow. You've heard the stories, I'm sure, about as far as the lyrics go, it was aimed at the politicians at that time, which was the Vietnam War. And Mm -hmm. uh, basically the idea is that they would stop screwing around and get together and listen to music and use that for their uh, means of speaking. Right, um,
3: right. um,
2: Hashing out problems, what have you. Right. Rather than the way they were doing it. Yeah, are still doing it. <laughs> right,
3: not a lot has changed.
2: Uh, <laughs> that they would come to a much more peaceful and uh, happy existence, coexistence. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what the song was written about. It wow. didn't interesting. work, of course, but it was a great idea.
1: <laughs> well, you know, maybe that's just because they're not listening. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think that. you did your job. Yeah, yeah, the, now they need I to try. do those. Um. Well, you guys released a a couple more singles from that sophomore album, including a Top 40 cover of Jesus is Just Alright, as well as Rockin' Down the Highway, which is the third of the ten songs we want to talk about today. Now, Paul and I both grew up in Nashville, and the classic rock radio station in Nashville played Rockin' Down the Highway all the time. And while preparing for this interview, I was completely shocked to discover that Rockin' Down the Highway did not actually chart. Um, and I guess that means that we were kind of hearing it in the last gasp of that era when songs got played on the radio because the local DJ just happened to like it. Um,
2: yeah, it wasn't a huge single in yeah. my mind. Well, you know, it, it's one of those for a while I didn't even know it was a single. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny. It's one of those songs that um, you know, I know you guys really built your following by, by playing live, And yep. this is a song that seems like a great crowd pleaser. Um, you know Talk about how honing your chops by playing night after night in clubs, in those early touring days influenced your approach to how you wrote songs or, or put songs together
2: question um, I'd like to give you an interesting answer here <laughs> um, I think playing all the time it helped the band develop its own style at that time what the band was about I think um, as far as writing songs I don't really know that playing all the time did much of anything hmm. to guide the way songs were written that happened because we got together and practiced a lot yeah. uh, in the basement of 12th Street and we would write songs on the spot, or we would walk in with ideas and put various parts on them, have stuff added by the guys in the band. Right. Uh, when we were practicing, and that's how we built our set because we didn't we played maybe one or two covers, but everything else was original. Mm. And um, as songs progressed, having heard some of the stuff from back then, it makes you kind of cringe. <laughs> but it's. Uh, it's interesting to see how a song might have sounded like early garage band it ended up sounding really good once it got in the studio and and ted and templeman who produced just about everything we did in that era right uh and don landy our engineer got a hold of it and really did an amazing job with the song ted had a lot of great ideas for tunes yeah long train running is an example About five versions of that song. Wow. And initially it was just it was a jam song. We played that song for three years before it ever got recorded. Really? And um I think the only thing that stayed the same besides the rhythm guitar and well that's the rhythm structure of the song so mm-hmm. to speak, but the drum patterns changed and um was uh without love. Other than that there were no words. So the words got made up every single night. Really?
3: Wow.
2: And which was always a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, I actually did that with more than one song, but that one in particular and when Ted came to me and said, We gotta cut this and I said, You gotta be kidding, it's just a jam session. Yeah. He said, No, nah, I think we can turn this into a real tip. and uh, so we cut a track which was much more sophisticated than what we've been doing live and um and I went he said, write some words, man. He said, you're already talking about a train. a while. why don't you write something about a train? Hmm. So um, I did. Wow. And about 20 minutes later, I came back in with the lyrics. Here you go! <laughs> <laughs> wow. And um, that was how that song came together. And an example how many times we'd come in with songs that were pretty, pretty loosely put together, or even if you had a real strong idea... Of uh the chord structure and the rhythm structure. You didn't have the lyrics, you didn't have the harmonies, you know, you didn't have this, you didn't have that.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's amazing how the process of making a record will force you to finalize those songs, you know, to, to pull everything together. It's almost the the record making process in a way becomes part of the songwriting process.
2: It did, very much so. And I also found out that I worked much better under pressure.
1: Yeah, huh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, Long Train Runnin' was a Billboard Top 10 single from the third album, The Captain and Me, and the next single from that same album, which is the, the next song I wanted to ask you about, is China Grove, uh, which has also become a, a classic rock standard. <laughs> And that's one of those songs that every bar band in America plays. Our, our high school, band yeah, when we were in high school, song, we, we even played that song. I think but you you're
0: required it, to play that yeah, song if you're. We in a played country. it really poorly. Sorry,
1: Tom.
0: But <laughs> we did play um,
2: it. No problem. <laughs> we demolished a few other people's toes in our town. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you ever had the experience of being in a bar somewhere and hearing a bunch of guys in a house band launch into one of your? classic songs with, you know, those guys being unaware that the person who wrote it and sang it is actually in the room?
2: Not a lot, I've been asked. A couple huh. of times, but not as often as you would think. Um, Interesting. Number one, once we started touring, we were out all the time, mm-hmm. and we did like 200 plus shows a year and then an album every year. So there was basically go, 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 right? Right. and there was no time off. Right. I didn't hang out in clubs very much, because when I got home, it was time to, like, take a break. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also start writing, because you had to have new tunes for the next album right away. Right. And uh, it wasn't a lot of free time, looking back on it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure.
2: On the road, we would wander into a bar someplace once in a while. Yeah. And, yeah, run into a situation like you're describing. (laughs) But uh, oddly enough, I didn't hear a lot of people playing our stuff, mostly. I mean, I heard them playing everything else. Right. Uh, and I remember even sitting in with people playing songs like "Do the Duck." You know, I mean, it was uh, <laughs> right. crazy things. Well,
0: in 1974, you guys scored your fifth top forty single with "Another Park, Another Sunday" uh, from your fourth album, "What Were Once Vices Are Now Habits."
3: Another lonely park.
0: Um, so many of your hits up to that point were upbeat, feel good songs and even though Another Park, Another Sunday has a great groove, it's kinda of more of an introspective, I'm lost without you type of lyric. Uh what's the story behind that one?
2: It was literally just a description of what I was going through with this chick. Um <laughs> I just broke it up with and that's uh, pretty much exactly what I was singing about. Yeah. Uh, so it was a real life story. Um not necessarily fascinating in all aspect <laughs> of it, but it was uh just a description of uh, breaking up with a girl I've been seeing for, oh God, I don't know, a year, yeah. six months, a year, something like that. A lot of the songs I write, and most of the time when I'm writing, I always write the track first. Hmm. In fact, pretty much always, period, write the track first. Wow, that's interesting. Then I derive the feel from the track and decide what lyrics are apropos for what i'm playing yeah
3: mm-hmm.
2: as opposed to say uh bernie top and handing a lyric sheet to uh, elton john and saying here's some great lyrics write us off i don't know how you do that right. i don't yeah. understand that whole mental process I, I don't get it yeah it's amazing to me that people can do that it's mm-hmm. really cool yeah i cannot do that
3: wow
2: i mean i can sit down with some lyric ideas but generally they're not going to make it to the end Right. That's why the track is so important to me to get a feel of where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. That's
1: interesting. Ah, interesting, yeah. Um well the B side of Another Park Another Sunday was Black Water which wound up getting picked up by some local radio stations and eventually became the Doobie's first number one single and you know that song of course was written by your bandmate Patrick Simmons and even though he had been writing quite a few of the album cuts up to that point, uh, I don't think he had written any of the singles. Um, and that moment must have been a, an interesting dynamic. Um, was there a spirit of, of competition between you guys in terms of songwriting? And if so, if you know, in what ways did that kind of influence um, the way that you guys approached the process?
2: I don't think I would look at it as competition at all. We were just basically trying to come up with enough songs to make an album. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: <laughs> and. Uh, You know, whatever whoever had a song, that's great. Let's see how this works. You know, and then Ted would decide which songs we'd use. I don't think we ever came in with way too many songs. That was never a problem. Yeah, Um, right. Especially with the schedule we were keeping. Right. Sure. Yeah. We were pretty happy to have ten or eleven songs. In fact, we were glowing if we had ten or eleven songs. (laughs) Right. 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 But that, from what I can remember, I mean, I wasn't even in the studio when that song got hatched. I guess he'd been noodling around with that for a while, and Ted would kind of heard it in the background, and and uh, he said, "You ought to take that and, and turn it into a song." And Pat didn't really have a song at that point for it; he was just it was just something to play. Yeah. And so he did kind of like what I do. He took it off and added some parts to it, and then they built in that uh, round that they sang in the mm-hmm. in the studio. That wasn't part of the song when he brought it back. Right. And I did. Show up for the, I did happen to be in the studio when that was going on, and uh, actually, I think they'd already sung the round. I just sang some uh, scat parts. I'd
3: like to hear some funk Dixie Lampert and Mama Gomez take me by the hand. I'd like to hear some
0: your next album, Stampede, produced a hit uh, with your cover of the old Kim Weston Motown classic, Take Me In Your Arms, Rock Me. Um, and by this point, you had recorded a handful of cover songs. As someone who is certainly capable of writing great original material, how do you decide when to do a cover instead of one of your own songs? I mean, is it is it that thing of just trying to kind of like fill an album and get enough great material? Um, and what is it about that particular song that drew you to it?
2: I loved that song. <laughs> yeah. I just loved that song, and um, I'd actually been trying to get the band to cut it for a couple of years before we did it, and I wasn't getting any takers. And then um, finally, uh, Teddy said, let's give it a shot, and then we, of course, rearranged it and uh, came up with what you heard, but um, I just thought that was a really cool song. It's Mm -hmm. as simple as that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great song. (laughs) Okay, so I'm not counting uh, Take Me In Your Arms in the Tom's Top Ten, since that's a cover song. (laughs) So that brings us to song number seven, uh, which is Turn It Loose. Um, And Turn It Loose was not a single, (laughs) and it was the only song... Yeah. And the only song that you contributed to the Taking It to the Streets album, which uh, was the first Doobie Brothers record, of course, after Michael McDonald joined the band. And for those who who might not be aware, you had been sidelined with some health issues, but then you briefly returned to the group in this period. Um, Talk a little bit about the experience of suddenly having to share the creative input in the context of this whole new dynamic after you had been a, a fairly dominant presence on all the albums up to that
2: point. Um, it was interesting because I didn't hear any of the other tunes um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly musically what was going on because I wasn't hanging with the band all the time at that point
3: yeah
2: I was more working on the ulcer that I was dealing with right and um that kind of kept me from doing a lot of stuff and so even writing a song at all I was surprised I came up with something and while the song was not exactly a showstopper. um We did cut it. It was an okay song. It wasn't a great song. It was Mm -hmm. just an okay song with an album track.
3: Yeah. And
2: it didn't fit musically (laughs) with the rest of the songs (laughs) on that album, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Most of the other... songs on that album were you know michael influenced and, and going in that kind of a direction and pat had songs on of course as well but right uh it seemed kind of out of place for all the other tunes that were mm-hmm. on that album
1: yeah must have been a little surreal to uh <laughs> with all the albums up to that point with your presence being so front and center to to have one song on the record and it, obviously it was a it was a big shift uh in the history of the doobie brothers
2: at that point yeah everything changed drastically from there on until 92 i mean oh. 82, 82 excuse me yeah when the band broke up it uh took a complete left turn in another direction i have to say they did a great job man they you know michael wrote some great songs hmm. great voice uh, the keyboard became the instrument that right. everything was kind of centered around interesting and um yeah, it went a completely different direction, and they had a great deal of success—the Grammys with that and everything yeah. else. It was really pretty cool, yeah. I, and I kind of grateful for all that because it really kept the name uh, buoyant in yeah. the public's mind. Sure, yeah, and uh, they even took it to a higher level, actually.
0: But yeah, I, I did want to ask you, you know, because you you ultimately did um, step away from the Doobies in the middle of the sessions for what would become the band's seventh studio album and and the first without any Tom Johnston songs, which was 1977's "Living on the Fault Line." Um, But then you went on to record your first solo album, Everything You've Heard is True, which was released in 1979. And that album produced the top 40 single, Savannah Nights. Something that we've not really touched on yet is your use of percussion. And Savannah Nights maintains that theme with kind of an almost like Latin meets disco kind of feel. Um, talk a little bit about what role percussion plays in your conception of a song when you're in the process of writing or building a track.
2: People uh, in percussion using congas and timbales and things yeah, of that yeah, nature. Yeah. yeah. I never wrote with those things in mind. They were always put on later yeah. as... Um, something to enhance the track interesting i never sat down and said this needs this and this needs congress this needs um that i can recall except uh back away and of course this song wasn't a single but the song of the captain and me hmm. had a tremendous amount of percussion on it yeah and uh that's the only one i can remember you know saying this really would be hip if we had you know a great percussionist and we did have a few like Vic feldman and 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 others um, that were playing at a body hall. Just a slew of people that played percussion on their albums.
0: Well, it's interesting when you when you talked before about how you kind of um, I think you were talking about playing uh, writing. Listen to the music, and you kind of came up with that really percussive, active strumming style. And you were talking about sort of replicating a drum kit. Um, and it's almost as if like limitations or boundaries can kind of. Inspire you in a certain direction. You didn't have a drum kit sitting there with you, so you created a rhythm of your own. Um, it almost seems like there's a there's a production that happens in your mind, and then your hands kind of do do their best to replicate it, and then you come up with a style.
2: Yeah, that would be correct. And as I said, that was based on being minus a drummer. Um, hmm. I think the first time I really paid attention to that was in a cow pasture. It's going to sound really nuts, but. Um, <laughs> I had a girlfriend in Stockton. I used to go over and wait for her to get out of whatever college I was. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> right. It was in the summertime and um we were hanging around a low and which was Jesus, I don't know, well over an hour drive from San Jose. Yeah. And I used to go over there and I had all these hours to kill so I would go sit in this pasture and play guitar for hours. Oh, wow. And uh I had cows to back me up, it was kind of nice, really nice, kind of moving <laughs> harmonies, it was great. Right.
3: that's funny.
2: But I, that's where I kind of got into that whole kick and snare thing in mm. the rhythm, yeah. um, and that's when I started doing that a lot, and then I mm. kind of brought that in to a lot of different songs.
1: Well, you released another solo album, Still Feels Good, in 1981 before joining up uh, with the Doobies for one of the shows on that 1982 farewell tour. Mm -hmm. And then you cropped up on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack in 1987 before... The original configuration of the Doobie Brothers came back together for the gold selling Cycles album in 1989. Um, Now, that album spawned the single The Doctor, which hit number nine on the Billboard pop chart and is also the ninth song in the Tom's Top 10 that I want to ask you about today. Now, up to this point, almost all of the hits that you'd written were songs that you wrote by yourself. Um, The Doctor, however, is credited to you, along with Eddie Schwartz and Charlie Midnight, who produced that album. Um, Talk about that song specifically, and in more general terms, uh, the difference in the process of writing by yourself versus working with
2: collaborators. Okay, I had been playing that song for a while. I'm not exactly sure how long, but I had been playing in a band called Border Patrol in Marin County. Right. And that's when I wrote that song. Right. Um, but the chorus, which is the actual selling point of the song, was totally different and wouldn't have done well on radio. Huh.
3: Hmm.
2: It was... Uh, I liked it a lot, but it wasn't a... Looking back on it now, it wouldn't have gone anywhere with that. Wow. Um so they actually installed the um radio friendly course if you will. The right. thing that people could sing along with and remember and, and uh, what have you, anyway. And we we were just sitting uh in my house at the time over on uh LaVerne in Mill Valley and we went through various iterations of of what that was going to be. Yeah. And they came up with it i I can't take any credit for any of that part. Mm. they came up with the words they suggested the chord change, which was really, really simple and uh one of the reasons it worked. yeah everybody thinks well, not everybody a lot of people think that you know more chords the better. it's not necessarily the case <laughs> right. um and that's a great example of it and that's when that song took off, I was as shocked as anybody else i um I, I liked the song. It was okay, uh, but it wasn't really my favorite song on the album or anything. Right. And uh, but I was happy to have a single. I was happy that we had a single at all. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it was our first thing out of the box in several years. Right.
1: Yeah. And hey, a top ten. <laughs> you yeah.
2: Know? Yeah. Yeah. That amazed me as well.
1: You know, kind of in the similar vein, I just thought of this um, kind of related to that same question about writing, you know, solo versus collaborating. You know, it's interesting to me that, that you and Patrick Simmons have each written so many Doobie Brothers songs, but but rarely together. I mean, there are exceptions. Um, it Won't Be Right from that first album, I think is credited to both you guys. And Sweet Maxine was one of the, the rare singles that has both your names on it. But generally, you guys each kind of went your separate ways when it came to writing. Um, was that because... You worked better as bandmates than writing partners, or what was it that kind of left you guys each in your own camp when it came to the writing, but then obviously collaborating together when it came time to, to be on stage?
2: You know, I, I credit that to the same reason this band plays so many different styles of music, essentially, and what makes this band what it is. where The band is really widely versed musically. That's the way this band's always been. That we've never been a concept band. We don't ever to go in one specific direction we just write songs and whatever comes up comes up well that's how the writing was done yeah. and still is done in this band hmm. uh, today Yeah, uh, in this uh, version of the band in the Michael version of the band as far as I know that's how it was done then too Michael came up with his songs Pat came up with his songs right. um, and this version of the band I come up with my songs Pat comes up with his songs and we try to do something to complement each other's songs Right, but we don't ever sit down and write them together and, and why that is I don't really know hmm. just the way it seems to work out
1: yeah it's interesting you point that out because the the three biggest Doobie Brothers hits of the 1970s were Long Train Runnin', which of course was yours, and uh, Blackwater, which was Patrick's, and What a Fool Believes, which was Michael's. Uh, and like you say, you know, those three songs don't even necessarily sound like they're the same band. I mean, it's a variety. Yeah, it's a, this different genres. So kind of given that and what you're describing... um, what would you say it is is the glue or the, the, the common thread that kind of holds the Doobie Brothers together?
2: Playing live. That is the, to me anyway, that's my, my uh, version of it. That's how I see it. Uh, we play live so much. That, to me, is really what the band is all about. And then the writing part of it, I write all the time. I like to write songs. To me, it's, a, it's like a hobby. I write songs because I just like to write songs. Yeah. And I go all over the place. It's definitely not always sounding like Bibby Brothers. Yeah. But um, as far as the band goes, I would say touring. Um, yeah, yeah. Because we do a lot of it. And we play, we enjoy it for several reasons. I, I think the biggest thing is the audience interaction. That's mm. hugely important to everybody on the right. stage. Right. Yeah. And that's the payoff for playing live for me. I mean, that's pretty much what it's all about. Yeah, for and, sure. And playing your song well, of course, is certainly right up there with it, but uh, getting involved with the crowd and getting them up and, and singing along on a song to me is, if you haven't done that on any given night, you kind of didn't get your job done. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right, right. Interesting. You know, you mentioned that the the Doobie Brothers is, is kind of about being a live band, and, and you guys don't release as many albums these days as you once did. I mean, after Cycles came Brotherhood in 1991 and then it would be Almost a decade before sibling rivalry in two thousand, and then almost another decade until your most recent album of new material, uh, "World Gone Crazy," which debuted in the top forty. Um, now,
2: producer it sadly got overlooked. That was one of the best albums. We've, that's probably the best album we recorded since Stampede. Wow! Yeah, it is it, really it, a good album.
1: You know, Ted Templeman was back at the at the producer's helm for the first time since the group disbanded, and and the the title track. Um, which I think is a great song, one that you wrote uh, solo, and actually the, the final song on our, our Tom's top ten list today. Um, that song, World Gone Crazy, um, it's reminiscent of the classic Doobie Brothers record, but it's it's kind of also got a little more of that New Orleans kind of vibe to it. So it's kind of, at once sounds kind of classic Doobies and also has kind of a new twist on it. where that song came from
2: that song was written on keyboards it was not written on guitar Um, interesting i got into a thing somewhere along, along the line there probably in the early 2000s where i started using keyboards to write tunes and uh that ended up being one of them that was also a leftover from uh, Keith Knutson passing away. That, that didn't in any way, shape, or form have anything to do with what the song was saying or doing. But for some reason, when that happened, because I was very close to Keith, and uh, it really shook me up. Right. And for whatever reason, it was like his parting gift, if you will. When that happened, and after I wrote about three songs that were just dirges, they were miserable. <laughs> <laughs> they were sad. They were, yeah, going, God, i got to stop doing this. And... Right. Um, I wrote about 10, or 11 songs, maybe more, and I don't even know where they came from. Mm-hmm. It's like, as a writer, you have these golden moments, and I, I call them uh, just that. I mean, they, basically what you're doing, as far as I'm concerned, is somebody else is writing the song, and you're just putting it down. It's mm-hmm. coming from the sphere. I don't know where it's coming from. Wow. I don't know where the words come from. I don't know where the chord changes come from. They just show up. Yeah. And you don't have to work and slave over it because it's doing it for you. And it's kind of like you're channeling another spirit. I know that sounds wacky, but uh,
3: yeah.
2: it feels like that. Yeah. Because the song just builds itself. You don't have to you know, spend hours trying to come up with a special lyric. You don't have to come up with, a, what's that chord change? They just show up. Mm-hmm. And I had about at least probably about 12 songs that happened as a result of that. And a lot of them ended up on uh, World Gone Crazy.
0: Wow. wow well in 2014 you guys did an album called southbound featuring the remakes of the classic doobie brothers songs with country stars like blake shelton and hunter hayes on listen to the music uh toby keith and huey lewis appeared on long train In. then you had chris young and brad paisley duetting with you on china grove and Rockin' down the highway respectively and of course charlie warsham uh joining you for uh, another take on on that first single that we talked about nobody um you know, in a lot of ways, current country artists are at least as influenced by the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles and Leonard Skinner as they are by Hank Williams or Johnny Cash. Um, and so now, you, you know, you look at a, at a career with, with so much success and so many songs, so many albums, you're, you're watching audiences respond to them night after night. But what does it mean for you now to see the impact that your songs continue to have on a new generation of artists?
2: Uh, It it is both humbling and very gratifying. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, the album South Bend, I had no idea that we had so many fans in the country genre musicians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every one of them came up, in the studio guys anyway, and said, God, I just love your songs, man. Grew up listening to your stuff. And we don't know this. We live off in this little isolated world where we're playing all the time on the road. You know, we know about buses and hotels and gigs, and that's about it. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, we have people that we like and stuff that we hear that are artists that are on their way up or whatever. But um, I, we were all amazed. Uh, and we were kind of blown away at, at the amount of people who were so into the band. Just, mm. We didn't know. Yeah. And,. Um, you kind of don't know if you, if you're living the touring, um, and when you're not touring, it's time off and that's what you use it for. Yeah. Um, you don't know about your impact on other people. You don't think about it. I mean, occasionally you'll have somebody in the audience come up and say, God, I went through this, uh, I was going through this in my life when that song came out, whatever that song might be. Yeah, And, um. And it's very gratifying to have kids come up and say, God, I just love you guys' music. It's just, it actually says something. You're actually, it's so musical. And, yeah. it, you know, and, and then they go on to bemoan some of the stuff maybe that's going on <laughs> now or whatever. <laughs> right. But the case is that, that you're making an impact on a totally new audience. And you're not reaching them through mom and dad. You're reaching them through probably streaming. Yeah. 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 Um, which is a great way to have your music spread to other people uh, of any age, yeah. uh, and obviously youth being, you know, the younger market being one of them, right? Um, not so great if you're a songwriter, but it's great the other way. It's great <laughs>
1: right. for great for spreading the message. Not great for getting paid, yeah, but the, uh, <laughs> the statements look a little different. <laughs> well, whether people are enjoying the Doobie Brothers songs off the old LPs, or whether they're discovering them streaming online, or however they're hearing them, there's certainly a lot of classic songs that you have contributed to our culture so we thank you for the songs and uh, we thank you for your time today it's been a pleasure uh, having an opportunity to speak with you and and get some more insight into the background of uh, some of the songs that are just kind of part of our lives
2: my pleasure I'm more than happy to do it
0: thank you for listening to find out more about our guests stream episodes get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews or to contact us with your feedback visit songcraftshow.com While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe.
1: We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Songcraft show. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we
0: look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.